0: Beloved listeners, I want you to go into beloved reader mode. When was the uh, last time you bought a magazine, you know, a, a physical copy of, well, Home Beautiful or The Economist or even The Woman's Weekly? Apparently, magazines are back in vogue, oh, God, pardon the pun, and driven particularly by something called digital fatigue and according to the latest research it also shows the advertisers are willing to spend big on luxury ads for a new niche clientele so what else is behind this pivot back to print julian novitz is a senior lecturer at swinburne and he's been looking into the data Uh, nicky brigger Sitting opposite me in the studio, and I'm warned she's dangerously witty, is the general manager. I'll do the witty bits thing. Thank you, no Nikki. Pressure. She's the general manager of fashion and beauty for R, that's A R E Media, which uh, publishes magazines like, well, Marie Claire, Girlfriend, and she's about to relaunch L magazine in print this March, and uh, joining them is award-winning journalist David Laser, an old mate of mine, and he's been a feature writer for the Australian HQ, the Bulletin, the Sydney Morning Herald Good Weekend, and the Australian Women's Weekly. He's also the author of several books, including a memoir, To Begin to Know, Walking in the Shadow of My Father?, and his father being the late publishing icon, Bernard Lazer, founder of Vogue Australia and uh, president of Condé Nast, and we'll get back to that shortly, and I welcome you all. Julian, what, in your opinion, is behind the latest resurgence?
1: Um, well, to speculate a bit, um, during COVID and during the successive lockdowns we have in Australia and elsewhere in the world, Uh, there was a bit of a pivot back to print media. And as you mentioned, digital fatigue earlier tended to drive that, where people got so exhausted by being stuck on their phones and their screens all the time. Um, There was a bit of a resurgence in interest in print media and print publishing of all kinds. So the publishing sector across Australia got a bit of a shot in the arm. More people were, were buying and reading books. And it does seem like print magazine sales have also risen over that time as well. So in the last year, print magazine sales, I believe, have seen a bump of about 4.1%, which is pretty good for a sector that's often been speculated to be, to be dying out or being entirely supplanted by digital media. Um, and magazine sales have increased in just about every category as well, interestingly enough, in Australia. So, from fashion to entertainment to more specialised topics as well.
0: So, um, old, older readers rediscovered favourites like, like The Weekly and younger's, uh, younger people people discovered mags for the first time?
1: Possibly. Um, The most growth has actually been seen in terms of sales in some of the kind of the old familiar favourites that you might see on newsstands like Women's Weekly or National Geographic um, or Better Homes and Gardens, which does suggest that a lot of print magazine sales are being driven by older readers rediscovering magazines and rediscovering the pleasure of reading print magazines. Um, In terms of new publications and new titles that might be drawing a younger audience, um, I'm I'm not so sure about about new titles that are emerging in Australia. But internationally, at least, and particularly in the United States, they tend to be produced as um, more of luxury, more like luxury products than uh, cheap disposable media. And they're coming out on a slower production schedule. So they tend to be published now quarterly or biannually and maybe it's possible that those types of magazines are drawing in the the, the interest of of younger demographics where it's a magazine that you hang on to for a bit longer, have on the coffee table on the shelf for a while longer and enjoy more as a luxury product than as uh, something you buy each week and kind of chuck out.
0: Sitting opposite me is witty Nicky. Nicky uh, (laughs) Ah Media is one of Australia's largest uh, publishers and Just take us through some of the titles.
2: Well, we have Australian Women's Weekly, uh, which, of course, David uh, contributes to as well. But we have Women's Day, New Idea, Murray Claire, Elle, Girlfriend, Home Beautiful, which you just mentioned, Better Homes and Gardens, uh, a whole lot of the um, home titles. So a huge portfolio from, you know, lifestyle, fashion. Uh, the weeklies as well. So
0: you are bestride the world like a colossus.
2: Correct. Every category, every life stage, 23 magazines, 16 websites. So, yeah, it's huge. And it's about nine in 10 Australian women that we reach every single
0: year. Nikki, Roy Morgan's latest print readership uh, polls shows that Better Homes and Gardens and Women's Weekly are Australia's two most widely read uh, Paid magazines.
2: Correct. So I know that Women's Weekly is about 1.2 million a month readership, and and uh, Better Homes and Gardens is slightly more. So it's an incredibly uh, powerful title, and reaching so many women. And I think there's this conception that a mis- you know conception that basically uh, magazines really aren't reaching women, but that's just not true. And of course, it's across. Australia, I think that's the great thing about Better Homes and Gardens and Australian Women's Weekly is that it's very much rural and urban.
0: And you're looking, of course, at trusted brands, aren't you?
2: That's right. And I think that is really the appeal of magazines. There's so much that goes into that printed page. So there's design, shoots, uh, incredible writing. You know, you, ha- you we have sub-editors that, you know, basically pour over every single word and make sure that it's absolutely right because once it's printed that's it. You know, you're not going in there and editing. So it has to be pretty perfect. And I think that that quality, expertise and trust is something that really is capturing audiences.
0: So in a sense, you've got a a community of readers.
2: That's right. It's a really strong community. And, of course, that spills over into, you know, our social channels and websites, et cetera, but also the events. You know, Murray Claire had a Women of the Year event last year which was incredibly successful and reached something like, you know, I think it was 15 million women, uh, you know, through their socials as well as obviously just, you know, through the magazine. But that sort of, you know, spilling into community, getting together... I, as we call IRL in real life events, uh, that's becoming a really powerful part of these brands. They're brands.
0: I love that, IRL.
2: Yes, I- IRL, <laughs> nothing beats it. <laughs>
0: okay, now you're about to, well, relaunch L in print, as I said earlier. Um, what's the thinking?
2: So the thinking behind L is, you know, uh, during COVID, Uh, we actually lost quite a few of the fashion magazines. So all of a sudden, quick succession, April 2020, about four magazines closed, uh, which was a very sad day for mags, uh, including Elle. And ever since then, they've all come back and they're all doing really well. And Elle absolutely is an amazing magazine. It's a very, it's Gen Z, Gen Y. Uh, and we want it to be, as you know, Julian was saying, that luxury product. It's on incredible paper, beautiful photography, lot has gone into the shoots, a lot of money has been poured into it. So it will be something that is a keepsake.
0: David Dior, as I said at the outset, uh, born into magazine royalty. What was it uh, like growing up with the founder of Vogue Australia?
3: Well, he was just dad. You know, in the first years I had no sense that he kind of was who he was and he drove a smart car and he dressed in Savile Row suits and and he went off to Clarence Street to run Australian Vogue every weekday morning. But I had no real sense of it until I was a little bit older, you know, sort of in my teens and I realised that, you know, he was presiding over this fashion magazine icon and that he'd launched it from unlikely beginnings because he was a German-Jewish refugee and uh, he'd fled Germany just before uh, the beginning of World War II and he'd come to Auckland and then he'd come to Sydney and then he was asked in 1959 to launch Australian Vogue. So I guess it was only really by the time I was a young teenager that I had a sense that this was this was something.
0: You were surrounded, of course, by uh, talented, uh, glamorous and and famous people. I have a vivid memory of his smile.
3: Yeah, he had a very, very winning smile. And, you know, I mean, this could be the the biased utterances of a son, but I think most people really enjoyed working for him. And uh, Vogue Australia was, with a couple of exceptions, a pretty happy place to work for and um, you know, he championed, he championed women's rights in the, in the late fifties and early sixties. And, um, he was ahead of his time in that sense. So look, I, I grew up with that, that, uh, that notion of of, magazines were everywhere and tear sheets were all over the, (laughs) all over the, the living room and people came for dinner and, And then he went on to run British Condé Nast and then um, Condé Nast International, so...
0: I also remember Vogue being cutting edge when it came not only to photography but also to fashion drawing.
3: Yeah, well, my sister could tell you a lot more about that than I could because I was more interested in the words and she was very into the sketches and the drawings and the aesthetic of the magazine, so... Um, that could well be right. But, you know, for just for even just the, the names like Henry Talbot and, and Helmut Newton, these um, extraordinary photographers, I mean, Helmut, like my father, both German-Jewish refugees and both arrived in Australia roughly at the same time and, and Helmut started out on Australian Vogue and then went on to much bigger and better things once he'd landed with French Vogue. In the '60s, but yeah, it, magazines was was really kind of this glittering, uh, this glittering kind of empire of uh, this stable of uh, Condé Nast was was like the sun king, Cy si Newhouse, <laughs> presiding over this universe of extraordinary magazines and talent, and that's. I mean, those days are, those days are well gone. I mean, I'm really happy to hear. That Nikki and R Media are, are, are relaunching magazines, and and L being one of them, and that's that's wonderful. But I I don't think we should get ahead of ourselves.
0: David, now the uh, the resurgence. Uh, well, is it leading to uh, more long form writers like yourself? I'd have to say,
3: really, I don't know. I mean, I will be um delighted if this so-called resurgence, and I'm not sure there is a resurgence, um, in, in in any meaningful sense. I think Nikki was quoted somewhere as saying that, you know, print, correct me if I'm wrong, Nikki, but you know, print is is like vinyl. Mm. And uh that's lovely. That's that's quaint and cute and, and I've bought myself a turntable and I've got I've got the White Album and Abbey Road and, and Sticky <laughs> Fingers now in my collection. But actually the truth of the matter is most of the time I play, uh, you know, via Spotify for, mm. through one of the streaming platforms and I think for millions, hundreds of millions of people around the world, they're not buying vinyl and they're, they're, they're streaming their music and I think it's the same for print, you know, there may be the relaunch of magazines, but who's going to be reading them How and how long are they going to last? And that's, I think, a big question. And is it advertiser-driven?
0: Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, back to you, Julian. Uh, the mags aren't as big as they used to be and I'm wondering whether with the well, the changing technological advances in print, will, it, will the uh, the change in cost structure encourage them to get larger?
1: Um, yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, to pick up on on David's point, that's it's probably quite right to say that what we're seeing isn't isn't a sweeping resurgence where we're seeing everyone pivoting back. Wholeheartedly to print media, but more like maybe a correction where people are, in some cases, rediscovering the values and and pleasures of print media in a variety of forms, including including magazines, and magazines are uh, finding kind of uh, a niche for a niche audience or a sustain more sustainable niche audience in some respects. So, um, I think I think it's it's interesting. Is apart from some of the the long-running popular titles and very familiar brands, a lot of the new magazines that are coming out or being launched internationally aren't necessarily um, targeting a mass audience anymore. They're they're aimed at producing a sustainable publication that will engage um, a a key demographic or an interested demographic. Um, So, I don't know if they'll necessarily see a, a huge growth in their audiences, but I think in terms of hold that it's still possible for magazines to hold on to a niche community of readers. Um, and it, it them. is
0: true though, isn't it, that new technology in printing is transformational.
1: Yes, yes. So it does create this, this ability for magazines or more kind of bespoke publications aimed at small audiences to publish profitable print runs. So they don't necessarily have to draw in thousands of readers every with every issue, but but can, due to the co- the reduced costs of printing, produce a print edition that, that can that is cost effective to, to sell to a smaller audience.
0: Cheaper to print, but not cheaper to buy.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, um, and that, that is, as we've mentioned, probably part of the, the, the trend towards seeing magazines as not just something you, you, you pick up and, and read and chuck out, but a more uh, high-quality product that's printed on good paper, that's, that's something you hold on to as, as more of a keepsake. For, so for it's a affordable,
0: affordable luxury, Nicky.
2: Absolutely. And I think what you're saying is correct. I mean, it is now a lot more targeted niche. You know, we're seeing resurgence of, uh, I know that Side Notes uh, launching in a month, Kinfolk Galar, which is uh, a local, very high quality publication that's doing quite well. But, you know, they are small print runs. Uh, And they've got very targeted sort of advertisers as well. And advertisers love it because they have their, you know, put a lot of money into their campaigns um, and their campaigns look incredible on this beautiful paper. And that's really the business model because if you keep your print runs tight, obviously, um, you've got expensive paper, but obviously advertisers do, um, you know, they acknowledge and they like that.
0: Who's pressing the accelerator here? Is it readers, editors or advertisers?
2: I think it's a real mixture, but look, advertising is key. Uh, no one's going to shy away from that fact. With, you know, for example, Murray Claire, which I edited last year, I've been editing that for eight years and I've just handed that over to Georgia Bay, uh, that we had a print increase of, you know, 10% in advertising, which was amazing because luxury actually really value print. Uh, But at the same time, I think what David says is right. You know, we can't shy away from the fact that the majority of people are on their phones, uh, on their, you know, iPads, etc. And really at the moment, you know, where our focus is called omni-channel, which is really across all platforms. And that's the only way that we're going to grow our audiences and sustain the brands.
0: Now, Nikki... How different will you make the, the reading experience for the print compared to online?
2: Well, for print, uh, you know, I have to say, because we're in fashion, it's very much about the photography. It really is. And the layouts and that gorgeous design. And there is nothing better, in my view, than looking at an incredible fashion shoot by, you know, top gold class. A nice big fashion shoot. A nice big fashion shoot. And we're talking, you know, like 16 to 20 pages um, of luxurious fashion on a printed, on very high quality GSM printed gloss stock. And there is nothing quite like that. You can see it online and we have, you know, a thing called Seros, which is this, you know, beautiful way of, you know, digital having your digital formats online, etc., And it looks fantastic, but it's just not quite the same.
0: And there's no annoying pop-ups.
2: And there's no invasive pop-ups <laughs> coming at you. So, and it is a different thing. You know, I think the good thing about it as well is you can come back to it. You know, you can put it down. You can go and do something else. You can come back to it. You don't, you know, it's always there and it's a great time capsule. I mean, the magazine that I remember, my mum had, you know, I think it was Time or Life and it was a whole special on JFK's assassination and I remember as a kid looking at that and we've still got it. Mm. And it's this incredible time capsule of, of you know, an, a, a, a mind-boggling event in history which you've always got.
0: I belonged to the era where magazines were absolutely dominant, and uh, I remember we also kept every copy we could get yeah. of uh, of Life, and even its Echo. in life. Look,
2: I loved Life. It was just for I, me. It uh, was just the the magazine that I had by my bed, just looking at all those incredible, you know, news photography.
0: I want to invade your privacy now, Nikki, because you've uh, got an interesting story about your daughter. Your magazine girlfriend and someone called, who I've never heard of, called Taylor Swift.
2: Yeah, I've never heard of her. Who is she? (laughs) Have you got tickets? Have you got tickets? I believe
0: my uh, (laughs) wife has.
2: Ah, there you go. You've got tickets. Um, Yes, we just did a one-shot, girlfriend one-shot. And so that's another thing that we're doing a lot more of is we're calling them, um, you know, Sims, so special interest magazines. So they come out when there's an event. You've got a huge army of fans and Taylor Swift and it's selling really well.
0: But tell me about your daughter.
2: Well, my daughter actually bought 10 copies and I came home and I said, Lexi, you do know that I actually run that magazine. I could have got you free copies. And she's like, what? (laughs) (laughs) She takes no interest in what I do whatsoever.
0: (laughs) And the... uh... The centerfold as it oh, were. Oh, yeah, the center, the, the good old centerfold. Don't we really wish it was? Wall, yeah. So she's
2: now, you know, it's got 13 posters and they've got her all <laughs> over the wall and the whole thing. So, you know, like nothing changes really.
0: Julian, how much of this is about nostalgia going, you know, going vinyl, dumb phones, <laughs> handheld cameras, cameras that, that weren't connected to telephones? Everything old is cool again?
1: Possibly, possibly. It's a little hard to say. So there's been some speculation that the boost in magazine sales we've been seeing post-COVID is in some ways perhaps generated by the, what's termed the, the analogue tendencies of, of Gen Z, where younger readers or younger younger audiences are, are pivoting back to tactile media of various kinds and, and enjoying and appreciating it, appreciating it again. So that's, that's a definite possibility.
0: David, uh, if this latest renaissance is a case of uh, everything old is cool again, how long do you think it will last? I, I read an interview you did in 2017 where you uh, predicted that print would be dead in 20 years. Well, we were all predicting that. Uh, and to be fair, you were referring principally to newspapers.
3: Well, I think... I would be the first person to welcome the resurgence of print or the Renaissance, as you say. I just my jury is out, though, as about whether this is a renaissance. I think, like everything in the world, it's complex. Time and Newsweek, which we were mentioned before, they're shells of the companies they were and of the magazines they were. And Time is digital. Sports Illustrated, probably the the grand sports magazine in the world, is is about to close. And you know, the, the this idea that print is back, I just I just wonder about that because the, the magazines like The New Yorker or The Economist or The Atlantic that, that I'm I care most about because that's just the I'm in in that world of journalism, they're in reasonably good shape because they've made the transition to digital. Mm. So if we're saying print's back. But it's just back on its own. I, 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 for advertisers that might be a, a good look, and you know they might see that as part of the brand. But I don't see how you can you can survive unless you're across all the platforms: your, your social media, your digital, your print, and your events-driven. Um, But this this idea that like vinyl, vinyl's back, I think is a bit smoke and mirrors. But if it is back, then for long-form journalists like me, I welcome it.
2: But I agree with you, David, absolutely. I mean, it it has to be across all platforms and that's what, you know, I think every publishing, successful publishing house is working towards. Uh, You cannot rely on print. There's no way. It has to also, you know, you have to sweep across all your social channels (laughs) and websites and also, you know, know, there's a thing called content commerce which has become very profitable for publishers which we're uh, doing a lot of as well which is sort of that intent purchaser comes in and, you know, You're talking about products and they buy the product. So, um, and you get a piece of that. So, uh, that's also what's driving a lot of the businesses. But yes, it can't just be print on its own.
0: Nikki, will subscriptions be driven by your online audiences or are you targeting new readers?
2: We're, we are definitely targeting new readers. And also, you know, because we have a huge network, we are targeting people across other magazine networks, et cetera, for subscribers. And that's a very important thing. But, you know, subscriptions for us at the moment are um, flat. They went up a lot during COVID and they've come down a little bit since then, uh, but they're still profitable. And, um, you know, we're still investing in them, but our digital subscriptions have actually grown the most. So that's interesting.
0: David, I heard a noise stage left, which I think were you trying to jump into the spotlight. Please do so now.
3: <laughs> I just um, think about the value of these media companies now. I think it's important to kind of keep that in mind when we try and have a perspective on what's what is what's the survivability likelihood of these of these new publications and that must be something that exercises the minds of you, Nikki, and, and your colleagues every day. But let's let's not forget that when ACP was sold by James Packard to the private equity group CVC in 2008, it was worth around $1.75 billion. Those magazines were just huge revenue spinners. And was part of a $6 billion sale of of nine and ACP. And four years later, CVC sold that to Bauer for $525 million, $500 million. And then Bauer lost hundreds of millions of dollars between 2012 and 2020. Um, And I think it was worth about $35 million uh, in 2020 when it was bought by another private uh, equity group that now is uh, that now owns the, the company that you work for, Nikki, our uh, media. But so I guess there's a there's a question in my mind you know that underpins this whole conversation. How do you make magazines survive?
0: Nikki, I remember a time when in fact I remember Kerry Packer proudly telling me that by some measurements, Woman's Weekly was the most successful magazine in the world per capita. Mm. It penetrated a greater percentage of homes than anything else. I mean, that was the zenith, wasn't Mm. it?
2: Absolutely. And look, to be honest, it still does. And I mean, it's not on the scale that it was back in KP's day, but it is still a very powerful magazine. And uh, I'm not going to reveal their profit margin, but I can tell you it's very healthy. And uh, to your point... David, yes, no, it's not worth uh, over a billion dollars <laughs> and, uh, yes, think there has been a correction but I can tell you it's still a very healthy business and particularly with the um, emergence of digital and the uh, amount of, you know, work that we're doing in the digital space and also social, et cetera, and engaging our audiences and our um, advertisers as well.
0: I have glad, glad tidings for you, beloved guests, and that is that afterlife life exists... After magazines, you can become the <laughs> the chair of the ABC, for example. <laughs> and I can see Ito is banging on the door because <laughs> she wants to take part in the conversation. But sadly, <laughs> sadly, Ito, we are out We're of time. we fending you off, Ida. <laughs> <laughs> Look, thanks very much, Julian, Nikki, David, for your time. Julian uh, Novitz is a senior lecturer in media studies at uh, Swinners. Nikki. Bigger, Briga is um, the general manager of fashion and beauty for R. That's spelled A R E Media, which uh, publishes uh, Marie Claire, Girlfriend, and the revised, revived L magazine. And David Laser is an award-winning journalist and feature writer. Julia, Nikki, David, thanks.
2: Thank you. And thanks, Natasha. Thank so thanks great. for having us. <laughs>